Good to see you guys. Uh, can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? 1 John chapter 2. You know, John is an apostle, but he has a shepherd's heart. And so he wants to encourage the saints, but he doesn't want to encourage those that are not genuinely saved. He wants to challenge them. And so he's trying very hard to walk that balance. One minute he's challenging people by telling them, look, if you are not walking in the light, if you're not keeping his commandments, if you're not uh, doing this or that, then you're not really saved. That's harsh, it sounds like. Not the kind of preaching that we're used to in our country today where so much of it is designed to placate, not penetrate. But John was a no-nonsense guy. And uh, so we're in a section where John is, First um, John chapter 2, where he's laying out the litmus test that determines if a person is genuinely saved. Now, this was a concept that he really introduced right off the bat in chapter 1 pretty much with the idea of having fellowship with Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, we read, If we say we have fellowship with him, and the idea is saved. If we say we are saved and one with him, and walk in darkness, we lie, and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, in chapter 2, John is continuing his thought when he says in verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. As we said last time, the word keep in verses 3 and 4 is in the present tense in the Greek and denotes a continuous Action. In other words, John is saying a true Christian is someone who continues to keep God's commandments or that the general pattern of their life is that they consistently, not perfectly, but consistently keep the commandments of God. But it seems from what John goes on to say that he has one particular commandment in mind which he believes if kept more than any other proves the validity of someone's salvation. Now, we looked at this last time, but just in case you weren't here, this is a commandment that Jesus gave to his apostles and to all Christians, really, in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. Uh, and he told them that they needed to love one another. They needed to love one another. Christians need to love each other. He said in John 13, verses 34 and 5, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love, and the Greek is fervent love, God's love, for one another. Now we know that this was the commandment John had in mind, because he goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light 
is already shining. And last week we said there is only one commandment uh, that is both old and new at the same time. And that would be Jesus' commandment that he gave in John 13, verse 34. The commandment is old in the sense that these Christians had heard it preached to them their entire Christian life. Don't forget, John is writing this first epistle around 96 AD. The church is over 60 years old now. So they had been hearing, you know, it preached to them, this commandment, that as Christians we must love one another. And so in that regard, it wasn't new. He said, I'm not preaching something new to you, but it was new in the sense that Jesus called it new when he gave it to his disciples in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. Now, as we said last time, God's command to love was not something that was new. In the Old Testament, we are commanded, or they were commanded to love uh, their neighbors and so on. What was new is that Jesus said in the Old Testament, Leviticus uh, 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus gave a new commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. Old Testament, love others as much as you love yourself. New Covenant, love others more than you love yourself. I loved you to the point of laying down my death, my life and dying for you. Now, die for one another. Put each other first in that regard. Of course, that starts primarily in the home, in marriage, as we said last time, guys. That's our responsibility, to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He loved us sacrificially. We need to love our wives in the same way. As we said last time, we're just still reviewing a little bit, but the distinguishing characteristic of a true Christian, again, isn't wearing a cross or a Christian. Some people think that the bigger the cross they wear, the more, I don't know what it says. I think it's just a fashion statement with a lot of people. But, um, you know, wearing a giant cross or a Christian T-shirt or driving around with Christian bumper stickers all over your car or keeping a... 40-pound Schofield reference Bible into your arm whenever you go somewhere. Uh, that's all well and fine. I'm not putting any of that down. I'm just saying it doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian. A true mark of a Christian is love, especially love for the brethren. Now, with that in mind, we continue with John's thought on, the, on the, this subject. Verse 9, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. The uh, light... Uh, that John's referring to could be a reference to the light of God's word, totally legitimate. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And John could be saying that any person that claims to be in the light, in other words, a Christian living according to God's word but hates another Christian, John says that person is deceiving him or herself and is still in darkness, is lost. But I think in particular, he has in mind uh, being in the light, just meant being a, a, a reference to salvation in general. We know, and you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is talking about the coming of the Lord, and he says, look, uh, that day is going to come like a thief in the night, but you, you're not of the night or of the darkness. You're sons of the light and of the day. In other words, you're saved. You know, we our sons of light and of the day. They are of the night and darkness, separating believers from unbelievers. So it's just a reference, I think John is saying, look, if you say you're in the light, if you say you're saved, and you know, you, you, you're you know, living according to what God has said in his word, 
but you hate other Christians, there's a problem there. There's a problem there. Now, let's be honest. I think if we all were very candid, you know, we would say, well, um, I'll be honest, there's a few people I wouldn't mind when we get to heaven if they lived on cross town, okay? You know, uh, no, they're going to be right next to you. No, but in heaven, obviously, things would be a lot different, right? I'm not saying that we always get along. I mean, families fight. We're family, right? I mean, you all have family, you know, sometimes families fight. But hate, that's a very strong emotion. I might disagree. I might get irritated with you. Uh, but hate you? No. That's a whole different thing, all right? And John says, look, if you hate another Christian, there is something wrong with your relationship with Jesus because the Holy Spirit's inside of you, Romans 5, verse 5, he has poured God's love into you. And God's love will not permit you to hate another Christian especially. He says in verse 10, he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Now commentators aren't sure if by saying this, John is saying that the person who abides in the light will not stumble themselves or they won't stumble anybody else. And I think it probably he had both in mind. But you remember what Jesus said in John 8 verse 12. If you follow me, okay, I am the light of the world. He who follows after me shall not stumble in darkness, but have the light of life. Look, if I'm abiding in the light, and Jesus Christ is the light, didn't John begin his gospel by telling us that? Uh, that he is the true light that gives light to every person coming into the world. The light entered the world, and the darkness could not extinguish it. Jesus Christ is the true light. And if you're abiding in him, you're not going to stumble because you're going to follow him. And he's not going to mislead you ever. If you stay in the word and you keep obeying what God has said, you're never going to stumble in darkness. I'm not saying it's going to always be an easy path. That, that's not what we're saying. But you'll never get off the beaten path, off of God's will, into some God-forsaken thing because you didn't know which way to go. The word of God will light your way because you're following Jesus. But... Stumbling there is a word that is often uh, used in the New Testament for sinning, sinning. I'll give you a couple examples. John 16, verse 1. These things, Jesus said, I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble in darkness, into sin is the idea. 1 Corinthians eight thirteen. Therefore, Paul said, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble you know have his conscience damaged and, and and get him to do something he's not comfortable with uh, where in his mind it's it's sin then uh, whatever is not done out of faith paul said romans 13 is sin even if it's not something god specifically said is sin if you think it's sin and you do it for you it is sin paul said and we don't want to you know we don't want to stumble anybody is the idea but, but here, by saying this, and if that's what John really had in mind, he was saying that those who uh, love fellow Christians, in other words, as he put it, abide in the light, he said there's no cause for stumbling in that person. In other words, the idea he seems to be conveying then is that a true Christian will, would never willingly cause a brother to sin. In fact, a spirit-filled Christian would never even try to tempt a brother to sin. 
you know, over the years I've heard stories and, you know, I, I've run across all kinds of people who, you know, they become Christians and they are trying to get free from alcohol, we'll say. Do I think having a beer or a glass of wine once in a while for a Christian is a sin? No, I don't believe that. Do I? No. Because there are too many people that God has put me over that are fighting that, and I don't want them thinking their pastor indulges in a beer or a glass of wine. Okay? I just don't do it. But I have heard stories over the years where somebody, you know, uh, and, and a professing Christian has said maybe to a young believer who was wrestling with getting away from the alcohol altogether, you know, works with the guy. Hey, we're all going out to work. Why don't you come out with us? We'll just, you know, just, just we're going to hang out at the, at the tavern for a little while with just friends from work. No, 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 I'm trying to stay away from that stuff. Oh, come on, one beer's not going to hurt you. Well, that's causing a brother to stumble. If they have a problem with alcohol and you're trying to push a beer on them, that is not, you know, that first that's not godly, that you would not take into consideration that person's weakness where you would say, I'm going to do my best to keep you away from whatever the devil can use to tempt you and get you to fall because I love you. I'm your brother. And if it means the guys are all going out to drink and you're feeling like maybe I should go, no, you and I are going. We're going to go somewhere else. But I'm not going to let you do that because I love you. That's the idea. A spirit-filled believer, the love of God in them would never let them do anything that would harm another believer. And so again, verse 10, he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him, verse 11, but he who hates his brother is in the darkness, is in darkness, and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now guys, in saying this, John no doubt had in mind a person who goes to church, calls himself a Christian, but hates other Christians for whatever reason. A few weeks ago, we, we talked about, you know, what possibly John might have in mind. And back in those days, of course, the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Some churches were predominantly Gentile, and others were predominantly Jewish believers. And, of course, before Christ entered the picture, you had Jews and Gentiles that did not like each other. Of course, the Jews were taught from the time they were just little children, they were not to hang with the Gentiles, not to have any fellowship with them, Definitely not to go into their houses or have anything to eat with them. God wanted his people separate. That wasn't until Messiah came. After Jesus came, Jew and Gentile become, became one new man in Christ, right? Division was over with. And God wants us to, to think of ourselves as one family in Christ now. But you know how that, those things die hard, those prejudices? And it could be that there were uh, Gentile Christians who looked down on, maybe even hated Jewish believers and vice versa now i say christians in parenthesis because john's point is can you really be a christian and hate another christian and he seems to think he seems to be saying to us no all right but i'm sure john dealt with that i'm sure that he was aware of these kind of prejudices it would be kind of like in our country this thing would mirror what went on in our country uh you know back in the mid uh 20th century in the deep south where you had churches that were very segregated. You had white congregations and black congregations, and they often hated each other. And John would say, that's absolutely wrong. Now, of course, a lot of churches are filled with cultural Christians. They're not really born again, but it's a cultural thing. And so, you know, you can always tell those who were not really saved from those who were, because, again, 
there was no love for other Christians. If you were white, a lot of whites hated blacks and vice versa. So, you know, but I, I do believe, though, guys, that John also had in mind, maybe even primarily so, I don't know what he was thinking specifically, but I think that John also had in mind Gnostics. Remember we said when we started First John, uh, one of the major heresies and heretical groups at that time were the Gnostics. Now, you can go back and uh, re-listen to the second part of our First John study. We went into the details, what the Gnostics were all about. But um, these Gnostics, many of them, had supposedly received Christ and considered themselves Christians. But instead of leaving Gnosticism completely, what they did was they tried to superimpose Gnosticism onto Christianity in an endeavor to produce what they believed was a superior form of Christianity. Their version of Christianity, they believed, had deeper spiritual insights, knew God in a deeper way, and was flat out a more spiritual form of Christianity than most of the Christians in John's day, what they knew. So these folks believed they were the elite Christians, you know, those Gnostics that said they received Christ. Many of the Gnostics never did, of course, so they didn't consider themselves Christians. Unfortunately, though, among many who did supposedly receive Christ, they didn't come out of that old pagan system. Again, they tried to blend. This was the big problem with Constantine, uh, the Roman emperor, who actually took the title of uh, Pontifex Maximus, <laughs> the title of the pope to this day. He was actually the first pope. And he was the emperor, but he also took charge of the Christian church. And he wanted to bring pagans and Christians together. So he took pagan holidays like Saturnalia uh, in December, and he made that the birth date of Christ. And then, of course, in the spring, the Feast of Estart, uh, goddess of fertility, celebrated with bunnies and colored eggs, he made Easter the resurrection of Christ. And what he did was all of his soldiers had to be had to go through baptism, mandatory baptisms. So when the emperor tells you to get baptized, you get baptized. Well, you can baptize somebody in water and not cleanse their heart of sin. And so you had a lot of people running around back then that considered themselves Christians were flat-out pagans. And, and this is what John, I think, was dealing with to a certain degree uh, in his day. Now, one pastor writes, and I quote, the false teachers of John's day arrogantly claimed a higher knowledge of the divine nature and communion with deity, but it produced only proud disdain for unenlightened common people. But the Christians, most of whom were slaves or members of the working class back then in John's day, were the truly enlightened ones who demonstrated their true knowledge of God as they not only love one another, but reached out in love to those lost in sin's darkness, end quote. So the real, the real evidence of somebody's walk with the Lord was not how spiritual they thought they were. It was how much they loved others, okay? People talk the talk. They, they can all talk the talk, all right? Don't tell me uh, what you know. Somebody, how's the old saying go? People don't care what you know until they know you care. Again, you know, if, if it's just words. People see through that. I mean, show me you love me. I mean, you're a Christian. Show me that you love me, that God loves me, and so on. 
But Gnostics back then, including guys, false teachers today, all believed they had superior light, quote-unquote, and they knew how to walk with God in a deeper way uh, than non-Gnostics did. But Jesus said in Matthew 6.23, If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, if a person thinks they have spiritual light, truth, but their so-called light is really darkness, error, Satan's lies, that darkness, guys, is greater than any other spiritual darkness. Why? If a person is ambivalent with regard to spiritual things, there's a lot of folks out there could care less about spiritual things. Doctrine, they could care less. They, they have no desire to know God, to know what the Bible says about God, or anything else. So they don't claim to have any spiritual light, all right? They're pretty straightforward. They're just unbelievers, all right? But if a person is committed to a system of spirituality, if they think that system is really truth, well, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to get them to renounce whatever darkness they think is light and come to Christ who is truly light. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 15 to the Pharisees and scribes. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one convert to Judaism. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus is saying that very thing. When the scribes and Pharisees went out preaching what they thought was truth, and they did have God's word, but it was supposed to point them to Messiah. The law was never to save them, and God made that very clear. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness way back in Genesis 15, verse 6. But they took the law and tried to use it to make them righteous. And so they went out preaching this message. And when they would get a hold of a Gentile and convince this person that they had the truth, here it is, and this person became a convert to Judaism. Jesus is saying to these guys, you make them twice the son of hell as yourself. Why? Because when somebody doesn't have any spiritual light, all right, and then you come along and give them what they believe is truth, but it isn't, now you've got to back them out of that system before you can get them to take a step into the true system, God's word. Christianity. That's, that's twice as hard. And John is basically, in a sense, he, he's kind of talking like this in um, chapter 2. Again, verse 11, But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eye. The, the idea is he thinks he's walking in light, though. Don't miss that. He thinks he's walking in light, that he has truth. But in reality, he has darkness. He's walking in darkness. He doesn't really know where he's going, although he thinks he does. He knows. But the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now look, please understand, John doesn't have backsliding Christians in mind when he said this. But church-going unbelievers, the tares among the wheat, the goats among the sheep, Jesus told us that in the true church, Satan would sow the tares. These would be false 
disciples, counterfeit Christians. Would they know they're counterfeit? Most of them know. I'm convinced most of them believe they're true Christians. But here's what John is saying. Any churchgoer who claims to be a Christian, who claims to be spiritually superior to other Christians, why? Because they've embraced certain doctrines. Like the Gnostics were always pushing this secret knowledge, these secret doctrines that if you only knew the formula, if you only knew the secret, you could unlock a relationship with God that would go beyond anything the apostles had. That's what they taught. Of course, that was very appealing. I could know God more than the apostles, John, Peter. Yes, we got the secret doctrines, okay? So people would embrace these doctrines in the name of Christ, but they would be false doctrines, of course. And John is saying that when that happens and they embrace the darkness, well, what happens is they tend to then look down on those who are not as enlightened as they are. And they look down on them often with contempt. Hatred is his point. And John is saying, if that's where you're coming from, because he dealt with these Gnostic, phony Christians all over the place. John said, if that's where you're coming from, you're deceiving yourself into thinking that you have fellowship with Jesus Christ, but are actually blinded by your own pride as you walk in darkness still. You're unsaved. In 1 John 1, Verses 5 and 6, we read, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And guys, by saying this in our day, I can't help but think of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. These are Christian cults. They consider themselves Christians, but they have blended. Mormonism blends Christianity with Hinduism and has people evolving into godhood. Uh, the JWs, uh, they don't believe Jesus is really almighty God. They think he's Michael the archangel. Uh, he's a mighty God, but not almighty Jehovah God, and so on. And so you have people that have embraced darkness, thinking it's spiritual truth, light, and uh, they're blinded. Often they're very zealous. Before I got saved, I remember um, a few times Jehovah's Witnesses would come to our door as a kid. And, um, and I'd hear about the Mormons, especially around Christmas time and the, and the specials on TV with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I honestly thought that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons were really Christians, but they were exceptionally zealous Christians. They were really uh, solid Christians, you know? It wasn't until I began to read God's word, the light, it shone into the darkness and exposed these things to me, whereby I realized, no, they're not Christians at all. They deny Jesus Christ. They deny the re resurrection, bodily resurrection. They say that Jesus is not God. He's a created being. They say that Jesus was, you know, uh, was the brother of Lucifer, and Lucifer went bad, Jesus went good. And we can all be like Jesus. We can all have our own planet. We can all evolve into Godhood. This is what's out there today. And so this is what John's talking about. It's amazing how relevant God's Word is, isn't it? A book written 2,000 years ago, well, New Testament, Old Testament, you know, 3,500. And you can pick it up. It's like you're reading the morning paper oftentimes. All this stuff going on. 
the Bible nailed years and centuries and centuries ago. And here John is talking about, you know, those that believe they have spiritual truth but are still in darkness. They're deceived, though, into thinking that the darkness they have is light. And Jesus said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness, right? But this is a very important, relevant idea for the day in which we're living, because we all believe Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And because of it, the Lord Jesus himself said, right before he returned, there would be an escalation in spiritual deception. I'd like to tell you the church would be immune, but that's not the case. We have to, if we're going to contend earnestly for the faith, when Jude says the faith, it's that body of truth we call New Testament doctrine. In fact, turn to Jude. Such an important last day's exhortation from Jude. You know, many places we are commanded to be vigilant. Jesus himself told us this many times, to be vigilant, to be watchful, especially as we see the days getting to a point where the, where the Lord is going to be returning. But we are to be vigilant. James, excuse me, Jude says in verses 3 and 4, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. That's what he wanted to write about. He wanted to write about our unity in Christ. Every teacher would love to teach on that. I don't want to talk about all this negative stuff. I have to. I would just love to talk about what we have in Christ, the unity we have, what he's done for all of us as the body of Christ Jesus. I was going to do that. But then I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's just a shame. Verse 4, these false teachers have crept into the church. How? Unnoticed. How is that possible? Because Jesus warned us they were coming. Paul warned us they were coming. Peter warned us they were coming. Jude says they're here. And they crept into the church unnoticed well that's not a church that's being vigilant what is that all about how can a church how can a church well we're living in a day when you have pastors inviting into their pulpits false teachers who think they are tremendous men of god why because they have big ministries the blind leading the blind how sad but guys, the Gnostics had a deep hatred for those who were true to God's word. And so that could be who John has in mind primarily in verses 9 to 11. I'll let you wrestle with that. Again, I think more generically, it's just anybody in, a, in any church who claims to be a Christian but goes around hating other Christians. That doesn't make sense as far as John is concerned. So verse 12. John said, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his sake, his namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. 
I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now let's break this down a little to see what John is really saying here in these these statements, okay? First of all, I want you to notice now he has turns his attention now away from the false Christians who he has challenged and no doubt in, a, in, a, in an effort to, to get them to see the error of their ways and that they are probably not saved because of what they're doing and how they're living and how they're hating other Christians, right? But now John turns from his attention from false Christians who uh, you know, hate the brethren and walk in darkness. Now he begins to address true Christians. He said in verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. To begin with, little children in the Greek literally means born ones. Born ones. And refers to all believers in Christ at any stage of spiritual growth. So this is John's way of addressing all Christians. My little children. What happened to this guy? This was the son of thunder. This was the guy, the biker wearing the leather jacket. (laughs) Tough guy. Lord, let us call fire down from heaven and burn these guys up. You know, they didn't want us to come into their village. Fine, let's blast them. And now he's like, my little children. I'm like, wow. I'm amazed at the transformation, right? Um, But, you know, it's happened to all of us. Okay, but um, all Christians, we know, have been born into the family of God, God's family, through faith in Jesus Christ, and their sins, our sins, have been forgiven. Not by keeping commandments or rituals or laws, but by grace. Our sins have been forgiven by grace because of what Jesus did on Calvary's cross, or as John put it, for his name's sake. God didn't forgive me for my sake. He forgave me for Christ's sake because of what Jesus did, right? As we progress in 1 John, especially as we get into chapter 3, we're going to read how that John tells us there are only two families on the earth from God's perspective. Two families on the earth from God's perspective. First of all, the family of God, and then those who are of the family of the devil. God's children demonstrate they belong to him, listen, by walking in the light, loving the brethren, and bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit for God's glory. The children of the devil walk in darkness. In fact, Jesus said in John 3, they love the darkness so much because their deeds are evil, and they don't want to stop doing those evil deeds. So we know that the children of the devil, they walk in darkness. They hate true Christians. John just told us that. And they can't produce the fruit of the Spirit because they have to have the Holy Spirit inside of them to do that, and they don't. So as Paul said in Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, they produce the works of the flesh. You can go back and read Galatians 5, 19 through 23, where Paul uh, contrasts uh, the works of the flesh, that's unbeliever stuff, with the fruit of the Spirit, that's believer stuff. But there's something here we need to address. Now, I wasn't going to do it. Um, not because I didn't want to do it. I just didn't think it was necessary right here. But I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, this is a good place to, to do this, okay? I think it's going to be helpful. And so uh, let me do this. I mean, something else we need to address that, that comes out of this section. 
as John just told us, we all begin as newborn babes in Christ. We all begin as newborn babes in Christ. But we must not stay babes in Christ. Because God expects his children to grow up. God expects his children to grow up. Now, when it comes to the spiritual growth of the children of God, we need to clarify a few things. And this is what I want to get into for a few minutes, okay? These are some things that need to be clarified. When we talk about spiritual growth, and sometimes I assume people know these things, and probably you all do, but I'm thinking I really shouldn't assume that. So let's talk about them for a few minutes, okay? First of all, spiritual growth doesn't affect a believer's standing before God. Let me say it again. Spiritual growth doesn't affect a believer's standing before God. Guys, that is a settled issue. Uh, when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Savior, and God's righteousness at that instant is imputed to them at that moment, spiritual growth, or the lack thereof, has no bearing on a person's righteous standing in the eyes of God because, again, his righteousness was imputed to them and not earned by them. Now, that's a very important concept because if God gave you righteousness because of your faith, which means you're saved, if you didn't have to work for it, why do we think if we don't work, we can lose it? That's the point that the New Testament makes pretty clearly, okay? There are those who believe that my righteous standing in the eyes of God is dependent on what I do, how I live. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't live a holy life. I'm just saying the Bible is clear that spiritual growth doesn't affect a believer standing before God. That's a settled issue. Uh, when I gave my heart to Christ, God imputed to my account Christ's righteousness. And that is an eternal transaction that can never be revoked. Turn to Romans 3. And let's look at verses 21 and 2. I encourage you to read Romans 3 and chapter 4 over again because it's just rich with this whole idea. But Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. How does a person get to heaven? How does a person be made is made righteous where they can get to heaven? Not by the works of the law, not by keeping commandments. Okay? It's God's righteousness apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. We'll stop there. Again, Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. That's interesting, because that was chapter 15, Genesis. Chapter 17, he was circumcised. That happened, I think, 14 years after God declared him righteous by faith. He was circumcised. Paul makes a point to bring that out in Romans, because the Jews believed that circumcision was essential for salvation. Paul says Abraham was declared righteous, saved, justified, 14 years before he was ever circumcised by his faith. And that's how we are saved. And it's not faith plus baptism. It's not faith plus keeping the commandments. It's not faith plus lighting candles and go to church every week. It's by faith. Romans 4, verse 5. Paul said, But to him 
who does not work for their salvation, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his, her, faith is accounted for righteousness. That's the same word in the Greek for imputed, which is a bookkeeping term, where God, through your faith, imputes something to your ledger. He writes on your ledger righteous through the blood of Christ and also paid in full at that moment too. All your sins are taken away. Christ's blood paid for them all and God now stamps your account righteous. And that's, that was imputed to you and I. We didn't earn it. It was given to us by faith, right? One pastor rightly points out, and I quote, at the moment of conversion... Christ's own sacrifice for sin is applied to the believing sinner and his own righteousness credited to the penitent so that God's wrath is turned away. All sin is paid for and pardoned, and the believer is accepted by God in Christ Jesus. The resultant standing is fixed and irrevocable, and it settles forever believer's heavenly destiny. End quote. It's a done deal. When you gave your heart to Christ and God declared you righteous, he'll never declare you unrighteous, is the idea. Number two, so number one, spiritual growth doesn't affect a believer standing before God. Number two, spiritual growth doesn't affect God's love for believers. God's word teaches that he doesn't love mature believers more than less mature or even carnal believers. He loves all of his children equally. And the reason for that is because his love for us is unconditional, based entirely on, listen, him choosing to love us and not on the merit, the worthiness, of any individual believer. Now, we saw this way back when God chose Israel. And at one point, because they got a little big-headed, God chose us because we're such a good people and we're wonderful and, you know, he's lucky to have, you know, that kind of um, and at one point, God challenges that notion. He says, look, what do you think, why do you think I chose you? Because you were a numerous and strong people. You were a weak and significant people. Why do you think I chose you? Because you were a righteous people? You were a stiff-necked and rebellious people. I chose you simply because I chose you. It's called sovereignty. Sovereignty. God loves us because he chooses to love us based on his sovereignty remember what paul said in romans 5 verse 8 but god demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners god loved us christ died for us now this is important guys because satan is always trying to get us to believe that god's love for us listen is merit based instead of grace based grace means undeserved blessings undeserved blessings it's only when a christian believes that god loves them based on how they perform that he the devil can cause them to live under the law and condemn them when they fail if you operate under grace the devil can't condemn you because you're getting what you don't deserve that's what grace means undeserved blessing unmerited favor you don't deserve it i don't deserve it so when I blow it, I can't say, well, gee, I'm blowing something I earned. No, you didn't earn anything. But if the devil can think that God loves you based on how you perform, now he gets you under the law. And when you don't measure up, you know, one day, 
for, like me, many days, you start thinking that God no longer loves you because I'm not really walking the walk. I'm blowing it. But if you realize that God loves you unconditionally, that it doesn't matter what you do. Now, because you believe that, if you really believe that God loves you unconditionally, regardless of how you perform and how you blow it, that shouldn't make, if you're a true child of God, that shouldn't make you want to sin more. It should make you want to sin less. Because the goodness of God does what? Leads us to repentance. If I'm really a child of God and I know that when I blow it, God still loves me as much as he's ever going to love me, that motivates me to want to obey him because he's so good to me. Only an unbeliever going to church, like John's talking about, could hear a doctrine like God's grace and say, oh, right, uh, if God's going to love me no matter what I do, let's sin that grace may abound, right? Because it's all about grace. Well, that's a, that's a wicked interpretation and betrays the fact that a person who would think that way and believe that way doesn't have the Holy Spirit inside of them. Number three, spiritual growth is not measured by how long a person has been saved. You know that? Spiritual growth is not measured by how long a person has been saved. Now, many Christians think that spiritual growth is like physical growth. It just happens automatically over time. And so you'll hear, maybe you've heard this, all right? You'll hear some Christians, okay, when challenged about the way they're living, challenged by maybe somebody who is not that old in the Lord, maybe you've heard them say to someone else, or maybe to you, okay, something to the effect, don't tell me about the Bible, you young whippersnapper. <laughs> I've been a Christian for 20 years. How long have you been a Christian? Two years? I'm way older in the Lord than you are. Can I just say something? A lot of people believe that they've been saved for 20 years, and so therefore, you know, they got it all nailed down. Don't tell me anything. I've been a Christian for 20 years. Can I just tell you what's really going on? They've actually only been a Christian for one year, 20 times over. <laughs> Think about that. I, that's true. They've really only been a Christian for one year, 20 times over. Look, I've known Christians who are still carnal after being saved for many years. Many years. And then I've known Christians who demonstrated a remarkable level of maturity who were only saved for a couple of years. Spiritual growth, guys, doesn't happen automatically, first of all. And actually, you can control how fast you grow. You can't do that physically. You can do it spiritually. Spiritual growth depends on your hunger for the Word and your desire to grow in your heart. It's up to you and me. How hungry are you for God's Word? And how much do you want to grow out of carnality into a mature believer? Turn to Hebrews 5. These verses speak directly to what we just said. Hebrews 5, verses 12 to 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. I don't know how long these folks had been saved. I'm guessing at least five years, maybe ten. And Paul, who I believe wrote Hebrews, 
said, by this time you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the first principles or the basic fundamental principles of your faith, the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. You know, a little infant baby drinks milk. But eventually they start eating solid food. And when they, you know, get to be a certain age, they start eating meat. Okay, that's just normal, right? And Paul is saying, look, by this time you ought to be off the milk. You know, the, the, the basic, fundamental stuff. You ought to be into the deeper things of God. And in fact, you ought to be teaching new people, new Christians, the basic principles of their faith. But instead, you're still babes in Christ. You, you, you still need milk and not solid food. Verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he, she, is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. In other words, mature is the idea. Those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying much what James said. When he said, look, if you only come to church and hear the word, you're deceiving yourself. You've got to go out there and do something with it. And that's what Paul's saying here. Look, the reason you're not growing is because although you're listening to the word, you're not really applying it in your daily life. Maybe they had no intention. There's a lot of carnal Christians who have no intention. They come to church. It's not that they don't like to hear the word taught, but for some reason it just stays in this place. And when they walk out of here, they seem to have compartmentalized their spiritual life from their secular life, I should put it that way. Never to be that way. But when they get into the world, they don't really apply what they've learned. Therefore, they don't really grow. They don't really grow. Well, I have to fudge the, you know, the product. I've got to do certain things to sell the product. You know, God knows I have to cheat my income tax a little bit. Uh, this or that, right? Justifying everything. And, and, and they're not growing because they're not taking the word of God seriously. It's a tragedy when people who are, are Christians for 5, 10, 15 years, and still can't even articulate the basics when it comes to the Christian faith. Well, give me my pastor's number. He'll call you. Hey, I don't mind calling him. I wish you helped me out, though. All right, number four. Spiritual growth is not related to the amount of schooling or theological knowledge a person has. This is a big one. There are many Christians who have degrees in theology. Some are professors at Christian colleges and seminaries who are shockingly immature, spiritually speaking. But as one author warned, he said, and I quote, that is a dangerous position to be in because the more biblical information one receives but does not apply, the more deceived he becomes about his own spiritual condition, end quote. See, that's the problem. Some people... Look at time, how much time they've been a Christian, and in their mind that means they're mature. Others look at how much they know, how much head knowledge they have. And in their mind, that makes them spiritual and mature. It doesn't work that way for either of those groups. We see this clearly in how carnal and wicked the spiritual leaders of Israel, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and these guys were the doctors uh, of the law. They were the uh, scholars and so on. But you read in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, how carnal they were, how vindictive, how selfish, 
how worldly. And these guys were the most learned in Israel. And then you compare them, compare them with the spirituality of the disciples, especially in the book of Acts. And how that, you know, at one point in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were preaching about Christ and the leadership threatened them to no longer preach in Christ's name. And Jesus, uh, uh, Peter uh, basically told them that, look, we've been commissioned to do this. We have to speak the truth. It's what God's called us to do. And it says in verse 13, Now when the spiritual leaders of Israel, the idea, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they hadn't gone to, you know, the, the, the university in town. They hadn't gotten their, their degree, their theology degree. They marveled. Where is this power coming from? These guys are fishermen. These guys are blue-collar guys, we would say. I mean, how is it that they know so much and speak with so much power? But it goes on to say they realized they had been with Jesus. That's what qualifies a person for ministry, by the way. Not going to some seminary and getting a, a sheepskin. It's spending time with Jesus in the Word and in prayer. And when you do, the Holy Spirit will equip you for the work He's called you to do. I almost didn't get into ministry when I felt God was calling me because I didn't believe I was qualified. I still don't, by the way. But fortunately, my pastor had recently done a, a two-part series, which he entitled, The Man That God Uses. And God directed me to those two tapes. And in those teachings, Pastor Chuck Smith said, Look, if God calls you to go to Bible college or even seminary as a young man, go for it. But he doesn't do that with everybody. Sometimes he calls people in the ministry later on in life. They have a family, small children. They don't have time to go to Bible college or seminary. But if the Lord calls you, know this, whom the Lord calls, he what? He equips. And that's all I needed to hear. I thanked the Lord for giving me that little piece of information. And I took a step, my wife and I took a step in faith. Don't be, don't be impressed when somebody has a bunch of letters after their name. I'm not putting that down, but I think Christians give that way too much credence. You know? I have seen people that have earned their doctorates in theology, masters of divinity and so on. And I have not been impressed with their relationship with Jesus at all. I mean, just... You just don't see a person who really is filled with the Spirit. They're filled with knowledge, but they're not really filled with the Spirit. Number five, spiritual growth and maturity has nothing to do with the size of a person's ministry or the extent of their activity. And, you know, I was going to continue, but I, I think we're going to need to stop. Just write that down for next time, Okay. Number five, and there's only uh, five, I think, that we, uh, yeah, um, and then we'll continue on for Sean. But uh, number five, spiritual growth and maturity has nothing to do with the size of a person's ministry or the extent of their activity. We'll talk more about that uh, next time, God willing. So uh, come on back, because John has a lot more great things to say to us that will help us in our walk with the Lord. So, Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth, and it is light. And Lord Jesus, we follow after you. 
and we stay faithful to your word, we will always walk in light and never stumble in darkness. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.